Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Please open your Bibles to Matthew 25. Jesus has been meeting with his disciples and is giving them four end of time or end of the world, second coming parables in a row. And this is the second of those. It is the second of the second coming or the end of the age. When we say the the second coming, it is when Jesus Christ will come back bodily and conquer all ungodliness. And we call that the end of the age because the age that we're in now is called the church age. And churches will no longer be necessary when Jesus Christ returns. We will no longer need to gather and worship God from a distance, as it were, because we will see him face to face in a new age with a new heaven, new earth, and a new Jerusalem will begin at that time. And so this parable is called the parable of ten virgins. If you look at the title in your, uh, in your Bible, it's usually that. And it is a wedding parable. Now if you lived in ancient Israel, you were poor, you were occupied. The Romans were occupied During difficult times like festivals and such, there would actually be multiple Roman soldiers on every street corner so you wouldn't be out of eyeshot of your occupation. And so what rose out of that was weddings being this uh, family, culture, society get-together. They would celebrate weddings and use that as an excuse basically to really throw all of their Jewish traditions into it and to really say we're doing something to grow our community no matter what the Romans do and that is what a wedding would represent. It would be the first step in growing a family and then as the family grew there would be more weddings. Now an ancient wedding is not so much like today's we have weddings. Uh, Because it was such a big, profound thing, almost all of the weddings in Jesus' day were arranged marriages. And so you had three basic steps in the marriage uh, process, in the marriage journey. And the first would be an engagement, and an engagement would begin when the father of the bride and the father of the groom would get together and make a contract which would contain monies and properties and dowry and things of this nature, and the families would agree that these two kids should get married. Now, most likely the kids, the families knew each other. It isn't like you get on you know, a Facebook back then and just pick a random family to do it with. These were families that were known and they felt that it would be good for society if these two families joined together. And then after a period of time, 
the bride and the groom would meet each other and they would do vows of commitment for the marriage in front of the two families that were joining and that was called the betrothal. Betrothal was very official in the Jewish mind. If you wanted to end a betrothal, you would need a divorce. If the bride-to-be or the husband-to-be passed away during a betrothal period, the unmarried bride would be considered by society a widow. So it was an official thing. You don't get betrothed and then continue dating to find somebody you like better. If you remember from the Gospels, Mary and Joseph were betrothed when they went to Bethlehem to have baby Jesus. And Joseph wrestles with, should I put her away? And he is pondering whether he should divorce her because she has been unfaithful, it seems, to him. But then an angel straightens him out. And then... As the day, a date is set for a wedding, and the first step of the wedding is a wedding feast. A wedding back in the time of Jesus would be a week to eight, ten days, depending on how much money was being put into it, but it was definitely multiple days. And you would have a wedding feast to invite everybody and to get everybody going and to get everybody in the mood And then after the wedding feast, perhaps the next day, there would be the actual wedding ceremony in which the husband and wife then would be sent away on their own and be the first time in their lives that they were alone together after they were married. And so Jesus tells this parable that is uh, at the end of the betrothal and the wedding feast is about to happen. Now, there are ten virgins who are the focus of this. These are the bridesmaids. You had, it's going back as far as we can see, you had groomsmen and you had bridesmaids even way back then like we had today. And while the bride was being prepared over here and the groom was on the other side of town, the bridesmaids would gather because they have to be right there when things are going to happen to be with the wedding party. And it talks about lamps. The lamps were uh, kind of between what you would call a lamp and a torch. They put off a lot of light. Most of the wedding party stuff that we uh, read about in extra-biblical data back then did take place at night. Now, it wasn't always at midnight like this one, but when it was darker, because everybody had a lamp, everybody had a torch, everybody had, you know, something on fire, so you had these 25 or so people marching through town when it's dark, and everybody can look out their windows and see the light, and it was supposed to be a procession to tell everybody that it was starting that the wedding feast was coming, and then the marriage, and then this one-week celebration. And so it started off with a bang, as it were. And so when they would have lamps and oil, this is not unusual. This is something that they were aware of. They probably had somebody knock on their door early in the day, saying, "The, the groom is getting ready. The groom is gathering his groomsmen. We need to gather in a house. 
And so they gather in a house, they bring a light source, they bring oil. Now from the very beginning, Jesus kind of puts the punchline there. He calls uh, five of the virgins foolish and five are wise. And that is the division that is being made. And what happens is the groomsmen, the, yeah, the groom and the groomsmen are being delayed. Now they're walking everywhere because they're all poor, occupied people, so they're walking within town. And there may have been uh, a problem with his parents, or there may have been he couldn't get the cummerbund done, or whatever it is that was, it slowed him down. And so everybody falls asleep. I mean, it's turning dark, and you, you, you fall asleep. And then the groomsman comes, and bam, 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 time to go, everybody go, and the bride's ready. And the bride says to the uh, bridesmaids, time to go. And they wake up, and half of them don't have enough oil for the second half of this adventure. And they're called foolish. The wise ones have enough oil. So they douse their torch, and they light it up, and they're ready to go. And the foolish ones say, I don't have enough oil. Lend me some of your oil. And they say, well, if I lend you oil, I won't have enough for myself, is the excuse. And so go to the dealers. Go, you know, whatever oil dealer is open at midnight. But they say, go to the dealers. And they leave and they go into town while the groom comes. And the five bridesmaids now come with the bride. And they do this well-lit procession. may have been instruments. Uh, there's records of that. And they go to the synagogue. And in the synagogue, it's all set up for uh, a big dinner, and they go in and they lock the door. Well, the ones who went to the dealers did find oil, and they come to the synagogue, and they pound on the door and say, Lord, Lord, open for us. And the groom says, I never knew you, or I don't know who you are. And then Jesus ends by saying, watch therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour. And so this is a very famous parable talking about uh, the second coming of Jesus because Jesus is the groom and we are the virgins. We are the maids of honor. We are the bridesmaids. And when you look at this and you say, well, how can foolish ones who have no oil get in there? Well, the question is, how did anybody get in there to begin with? And they were invited. If we have other parables about dinners and about wedding feasts and the main people don't want to come, the head of the dinner says, go into the highways and byways, invite the homeless people. The invitation for this final dinner goes out to everybody. This invitation to this final dinner is a universal invitation. When we talk about inviting people to church and things of this nature, that is the invitation to this dinner that is very easy and straightforward that we can do. We don't necessarily get into arguments. There's no parable or teaching in the New Testament where people with the invitation get involved in in philosophical arguments about the dinner with people, but we seem to want to do that today, especially people who don't like the invitation the way it's given. They will want to get into 
discussions about evil and things of this nature. And it's not our job to do that. Our job is to give the invitation. And so you have this group. Invitation goes out to everybody. It goes out to the rich people, the poor people, the homeless people, the homed people. All these people we know from other parables. And you end up with ten. Now the number is not anything. I mean, Jesus could have said, there's a hundred virgins. He could have yeah, I mean, and he, he picked a number, ten. And of the ten... These are all what we would call professing Christians. These are all people who recognize the groom is coming, okay? Jesus Christ is returning and are waiting for him in some degree or another. And so amongst the ten, as they're looking and talking and playing canasta, waiting for the groom to show up, there's no judgment here. Everybody is accepted as supposed to be there. Now, uh, James Boyce uh, put these sort of thoughts into a very good analysis. And what he said is, everybody's invited to the banquet. And today, everybody's invited to the banquet. These ten were invited and they accepted the invitation we are to go out and we are to invite everybody. These 10 responded positively to the invitation. These are not, uh, they're not fighting or people are not looking around going, you don't belong here. They all responded positively. And today we have people, really, even though you may not have met them recently, there are people who respond positively to the invitation. And you invite them to church and then lo and behold they show up and you're happy as can be because they respond positively to the invitation. All of you have responded positively to the invitation. Jesus Christ has said, come and you have come and you are here today. All of these ten and everybody else who is in church this morning is part of the visible church. If we were able to go and visit all the churches in California, all the churches in America, all 320,000 some odd churches in America, all these people that are sitting and some in small groups and some in large groups and some in homes and some in uh, storefronts and things of this nature, we're all part of the visible church. We all look around and we say, Yes, I'm going to see you in heaven. Yes, this is going to be the group that is going to be in heaven. And it's not necessarily exclusive. There are people who cannot make it to church, who will in fact be in heaven. There are underground churches in places like Iran that you cannot visit, that you cannot see who they are. And they will be in heaven even though that they are hidden. Everybody there had an affection for Christ. So the wise uh, virgins, they go with them. But the other ones, are, are, they want to go. They want to be with the groom. They just have an impediment. And they go and try to fix the impediment. They don't give up easily. They are having an affection for the groom. They, they want this to happen. They want to participate for it. 
And they all confess Jesus as Lord when the unwise, the foolish ones, get to the synagogue. In verse 11, they pound on the door and they say, Lord, Lord. They are calling Jesus Lord. They are confessing with their mouths the fact that Jesus is their Lord. Okay? And yet, they're excluded. All ten of them believed that the second coming was real, the groom was going to come, and they were all waiting for it for some degree, and they all got drowsy and fell asleep. Some people look at this and go, aha, the sleep is a sign of laziness. But no, the good ones and the bad ones, the wise ones and the foolish ones fall asleep. Jesus has been delayed for 2,000 years. If you want to rest, you are allowed to rest. We can work for the kingdom, but we also have to rest. And when it goes dark outside, we do have to sleep. We do have to sleep and wait for the second coming of Jesus Christ, even when we're asleep. My belief is, and I can support this from Scripture, is that if you're asleep, the rapture will still rapture you. You can be raptured when you're asleep, okay? We don't have to be awake 24 hours a day, seven days a week, our whole lives waiting for this. We can rest. We can sleep. And so if you look at the bigger picture of the various end-of-time parables, some things that we can notice is that the second coming of the groom of Jesus is always unexpected and sudden. Okay? They expected the groom hours ago. Okay? They were probably told about, I don't know, 10 in the morning, noon. It's time to get ready and get your stuff and get dressed for it. And they go to this house and it's 1 o'clock, it's 2 o'clock, it's 3 o'clock, it's 4 o'clock, it's 5 o'clock, it's 6 o'clock. They expected him back at 2 o'clock, but it's 7 o'clock, it's 8 o'clock. And then when Jesus says he came at midnight, midnight is not necessarily an hour. We don't say, oh, Jesus is going to come at midnight. Midnight is that very unexpected time. You don't expect anything to happen at midnight. For the most part, people do not plan for major events to happen at midnight, that is the time when we're all asleep. Now, things do happen, and we do, you know, special occasions like, like New Year's Eve. We can stay up for New Year's Eve and pop the poppers and sing Ole Lang Syne at midnight. But it is not a daily occurrence to plan our things at midnight. That is supposed to indicate, when you look at that and you go, oh, midnight, that's unexpected. That's sudden. I would not expect Jesus Christ to come at midnight is what that's supposed to say. Secondly, when Jesus returns, the group that he's coming for is divided. And it is irreversibly divided. The dividing that happens when Jesus Christ returns can never be undone. There is no third coming. I've heard people talk about, well, Jesus is going to come back for his own, and then when people see it, they'll believe, and then Jesus Christ will come back for everybody who believes. 
one thing to be sure, when Jesus Christ bodily appears, every single person on earth, saved or unsaved, will believe in Jesus Christ because he's right there and he's riding a big white horse and he has a big old sword. And that is what the and everything will come flooding and those who have cursed God their whole life will believe, but it will be too late. The believing in Jesus Christ after the second coming does not count. You must believe in Jesus Christ prior to the second coming to be saved. And so when Jesus Christ comes at that day, whenever it will be, whatever time it will be, he will divide the people and the people will be divided into the saved and the unsaved, into the blessed and to the condemned. And that division cannot be undone. And so here we have five of the ladies who are in the saved category. They go into the wedding feast. Jesus Christ has already come. He has come. He has gathered his people. They have gone into the wedding feast. Then the other five come... And they can't get in. A division has taken place. And there will be a division of two. There will be two groups. Only two groups at the end of time. And there will be those who are ready for Jesus Christ. And those who were not. And in all these parables. Those who are rejected. Are surprised. They cannot fathom why they're rejected. These people were late. They had to go and get oil and they came and they said, Lord, Lord, open to us. And their expectation was that the groom would say, oh, I'm sorry, I locked the door and open the door and let them in. And when that doesn't happen, there is a surprise. There is a uh, misunderstanding of the rejection. And so you have in this group, if this is all your professing Christians in the world, there will be some who are doing it in their own strength. One question that can be asked is, what is the oil? Some people say the oil is the Holy Spirit. Some people say the oil is this, that, or the other. One good way of looking at it is the ones who had extra oil were prepared. They had true faith. They had true preparation of belief. They were ready for the second coming. The ones that did not have enough oil were doing it in their own strength. They were doing it in their own ability. And there are some very strong, apparent Christians in churches who are doing it in their own strength, are doing it because of how it makes them feel, not because of who they're serving. And there will be some people, when it's all said and done, who have spent their whole life to some degree or another in church, and they won't be able to get into heaven because their belief in Jesus Christ is not there. I can serve God for all sorts of selfish reasons, for all sorts of personal reasons that have nothing to do with God. I've known, I've talked with several people over the years 
who are very involved in church, but God's existence was inconsequential to them. They were doing it for the, for the fellowship, for the business contacts. They were doing it for whatever personal reasons they have. And they will be the people who will run out of oil. And so what do we do? How do we recognize these people? Well, we don't because they don't do that here. They don't try to decide who the real bridesmaid is. I can only look at myself and I can say, are my motivations pure? Am I really following the true, one true and living God? Am I following Jesus Christ? Do I know who Jesus Christ is? Which brings us to how do you watch? Jesus says, watch therefore for you know neither the day or the hour. How do I watch? I watch by knowing who Jesus Christ is in Scripture. I get into the Bible every day. And you should get into the Bible every day. You should read a portion of Scripture, whether it be one verse or a chapter or whatever, small book like Obadiah. Read something in the Bible every day. And as you do that, you will get confirmation through the Holy Spirit. You read through things and you go, wow, I, I, need, to, I need to be better at this. Oh, I'm, I'm, God likes me for this. Okay, and think, you're looking at the image you're allowing Scripture to be a mirror of your life. And as you allow Scripture to be a mirror of your life, you are waiting for Jesus. You are watching for Jesus. I pray about it. I pray for the second coming, the end of the book of Revelation. John prays, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I pray that. I want Jesus to get this over with and get on with it, but he's not going to because I want him to. I just pray for his second coming. I believe in his second coming. We need to understand that many today believe that Jesus Christ is delayed and therefore is not coming because he's taking so long. Of why, you know, 2,000 years, if Jesus, ah, he should have come back during the lives of the apostles. But he did not. He's waiting for more people to be saved. Secondly, his return will be unexpected and without warning. We, we anticipate it. We want it. But we, you can't. No one knows the hour. You cannot pin him down to a specific date or time. And like the oil cannot be shared, my salvation cannot be shared. I cannot be saved for you. I cannot believe for you. You have to have your own oil or your own belief or your own faith in Jesus Christ. We are all saved individually. The Bible talks about groups and stuff all the time, but individually we're saved. We are not nationally saved. We are not citywide saved, we are not countywide saved, we are individually saved. God is saving individuals all over the world. And lost opportunities, as you go and you invite people to church, 
And that's a very easy way to do it. You just say, hey, Sunday, 1045, right there, point to the church. I go to the church. Uh, Some people will say no, and they'll say no, and they'll say no for their whole lives. And then when Jesus Christ finally returns, they'll be ready to say yes, but it will be too late. Jesus Christ is coming. He's coming back soon. He's coming back when it's unexpected. He is coming back for his own, for individuals who believe in him. And it is this that we come to church every Sunday for. It is this I get up every morning for. It is this that I study my Bible and I pray for. And that is the second coming of Jesus Christ, which will be at an hour that we do not expect. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, I just pray that you would cause us to watch and be ready and to stand firm against the difficulties that are in life, knowing that you're coming for us and you're coming soon, but we do not know the when, we do not know the how, but we know that you are coming back. Lord, we praise you for that, and we ask your blessing upon this time. We ask it through the blood of Christ. Amen. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 180 Llewellyn Boulevard, San Lorenzo, California. Our Sunday morning service is at 1045 a.m. Our website is livingfreetoday.org and our phone number is 510-278-2622. May God continue to bless you as you serve your King. God bless.